So before we get started, I have a really important question, something to clear up. Is it turban or turbine? <laughs> uh, that's a great question. Uh, I'm going to plead regional ignorance here because where I come from, we pronounce things funny anyway. Uh, I say turban. Uh, I say, I say turbine. Yeah, well... Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Today we're discussing something near and dear to my heart, wind turbines. We've got two of them on land where I live, and I wish we had a few more offshore. And stick around after the interview. Shreya Dervasala has the latest egregious example of the Trump administration sidelining science. About 100 miles due south of where we record, the blades of the turbines of the first offshore wind farm in the United States are spinning in the wind and generating electricity as I speak. The Block Island Wind Farm, located off the coast of Rhode Island, is capable of powering the equivalent of 17,000 households each year, cutting the electricity bills of the island's residents and cutting our power sector's pollution. And also, as I speak, Many other coastal states and energy companies are looking for ways to make offshore wind work for them. It's possible we'll see a lot more wind farms out in our waters in the coming years, even with an administration that is publicly hostile to renewable energy generation. Joining me to talk about the logistics of offshore wind, including why it's more feasible than ever before, is my colleague John Rogers, Senior Energy Analyst at the Union of Concerned Scientists. You might remember John from episode six, way back in April of 2017, when he was on the podcast explaining state-by-state progress on clean energy, or from episode 15 when he told us about rooftop solar panels and how they work. He loves talking about energy, and I mean really loves it. So he's back to talk about offshore wind and explain why and how its capacity is growing. Stay tuned to hear John get very excited about giant turbines that can power the equivalent of one house with just one rotation. We'll also talk about the falling costs of offshore wind installations and when our one lonely wind farm in Rhode Island might get some company in U.S. waters. Hey, John, welcome to the Got Science Podcast. Thanks, Colleen. Great to be back. Excellent. So offshore wind has been a long time in coming here in the U.S., The first project, the Cape Wind Project off of Cape Cod, was proposed in 2001. And my town of Hull, Massachusetts, was also trying to put a small group of turbines offshore a few years later. Neither of those came to fruition, but it sounds like things are changing. The first commercial offshore wind farm in the U.S. is up and running off Block Island, Rhode Island. And a lot more is coming. So tell me, what's going on with offshore wind, and are we going to see a lot more wind farms along the coast? The first thing to know is that this is an incredibly exciting time in the history of offshore wind in this country. Uh, first, it's exciting because we have wind turbines in the water, as you as you said. So a little under two years ago, a, a small project went online off of Block Island, Rhode Island, five turbines. Uh, but doing amazing things. And one of the things they're doing is helping people understand what these things are and what they aren't. So you can see the turbines, you can you know, metaphorically kick the tires on these things. 
And there is a lot more coming. And part of what's driving that is policy. So two years ago in Massachusetts, uh, we and many others worked to get a law passed. The state has utilities, local utilities, asking for bids for offshore wind. So at that point, it was 1,600 megawatts is what we, what the target was over the next 10 years. Last year, uh, New York, not to be outdone, said, I see your 1,600. We'll raise it to 2,400 megawatts. New Jersey, the new governor, when he came in at the beginning of this year, said, and the legislature said, let's make it 3,500 megawatts. We've got this building up of policies that are saying, this is a technology that we really care about. This is a technology that we want to see off our shores, that we get why this is important. So I think uh, seeing turbines off of Rhode Island, having Rhode Island take that leadership, seeing Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, other states really doing it. I mean, that's what's making it real for people. That's what's making it real for the industry so that the offshore wind industry says, yeah, this is a place we want to do business. So it's worth investing in it now because... It's happening. It's happening. And, you know, it, it, this is a technology that what the experience in Europe. So Europe Europe has been doing this. You know, the first pilot project in Denmark was 27 years ago. Uh, the first commercial scale project was uh, 16 years ago. Now we've seen so much. Uh, there are close to a dozen countries in Europe. There are five countries in Asia and now the U.S. So this is actually happening. And what the experience shows is that the prices will come down. So unlike other technologies that might get more expensive as they roll out, offshore wind is is coming down in price and coming down really impressively, actually. So Europe and Asia, they've had great success with their offshore wind. There hasn't been any downside or disaster where suddenly the wind stops blowing and there's no electricity. Right. And again, it was really expensive to start with, but the, the countries like Denmark, like the UK, like Germany said, this is a technology we think is worth investing in. And UK is a really interesting case because they got a later start. So, you know, again, Denmark, 1991, the UK had a pilot project not till 2000. Now the UK has a third of the world's offshore wind capacity. Earlier today, I checked to see how much wind power offshore wind was doing in the UK. You can see it real time. It was 14.7% of the country's electricity being supplied by their offshore wind farms. So so that's a lot. Yeah, that's, that's a lot. I mean, if you think about coming from essentially zero just a few years ago to that level, uh, that's, that's quite an accomplishment. And I think gives real hope for the US, which is an even later entrant into the offshore wind market. You might not be able to answer this, but hypothetically, is Great Britain's goal to get to 50%, 80% of energy generation from offshore wind? Or where do they want to end up? Well, I think what you want to do is recognize, and, and countries like the UK are recognizing that we have to get rid of, of fossil fuels. We have to get off of fossil fuels. We have a range of options for doing that. What they have decided uh, is that given what resources they have that offshore wind is a great way to go. So they have a strong commitment. They have lots of areas off their shores that are leased to private companies to develop these. And they're they are doing it and they're they're serious about this. So how much electricity can be generated from one turbine? I mean, I know they're they're different sizes, but give us a general idea. 
Well, so let's look at it in the aggregate first. So I mentioned that the, the UK uh, has a lot of offshore wind. Uh, as of last year, it was powering, it was producing enough electricity to power a fifth of their homes. So something like 5 million, 5.3 million homes in the UK. That was coming, that's how much electricity was coming from offshore wind. If you look at the the largest project uh, under development now, largest project in the world, that single project will provide enough electricity for more than a million homes in the UK. If you think about in the US, so Massachusetts has just approved the first 800 megawatt project under its its 2016 requirement. Uh, that project is going to provide enough electricity for one in six homes in in Massachusetts. So just that one project, it's going to offset the pollution of of about 200,000 cars. It seems like more and more states and communities are open to offshore wind at, at this point. Is that what you're seeing? Definitely. And I think part of it is is the price. I mentioned uh, the, the prices we've seen recently that are so much lower than I think anybody expected. And that that makes it a lot easier to say yes to this technology. It makes it a lot harder to say no. Uh, that was a that was a barrier, I think, to acceptance. There are also communities and states are recognizing the economic development opportunities. Those are much easier to picture now that we've actually got wind turbines in the ground in this country. And certainly the European experience where you see cities, old time cities like Hull in the UK or Bremerhaven in in Germany that have just undergone tremendous revitalizations uh, because in part fueled by offshore wind. So I know that a lot of the um, parts for wind turbines have been uh, built overseas. Do you see that industry coming to the US anytime? If you think about a wind turbine or a wind turbine project, an offshore wind project, it's got a lot of things. It's got the blades. It's got the the nacelle, the part that sits on top of the tower. It's got the towers. It's got the bases. It's also got the electricians and the pipe fitters and the welders and all. Uh, it's got the financial aspects. So there are a lot of different pieces. And I think what we'll see is you know more and more pieces of that being set up in this country. So even with that first project we talked about, Block Island, the basis for that were developed in Louisiana. You know, so we've got a vibrant offshore oil and gas industry. They know how to work in marine environments. So they built them there and they floated them up here and and shazam, there, you know, there we have them right there. So I think we'll start to see some of these parts if you think about, you know, the same as we have for land-based wind. Some things lend themselves to being made much closer to the project site. Other ones, you can float them across, you know, across the Atlantic or up from Brazil or whatever. So it really depends on the scale of activity and how, how sort of methodical, how, how clear a path a manufacturer has to a, to a, a really big and consistent market. So is energy storage still an issue? It's not really. It's, it's actually much less an issue for offshore wind than for some other technologies. When Massachusetts put out its bid request for proposals for these, you know, 800 megawatts, uh, they, that was part of the criteria that said, what are you going to do for storage? And so there were proposals that said, 
we're going to partner with a hydro facility over here, or we're going to build a big battery bank here. The thing about offshore wind is the winds are much steadier offshore, which means the turbines are going to be producing on a more consistent basis. They fit pretty well when we're using the electricity, when we need the electricity. So the times of day, or even the times of year to some extent. In New England, that could be winter. They're good winter producers, and we're more and more needing power in winter. Uh, so it's it's much less of an issue here than uh, for for offshore wind than for for other technologies. So, is there any such thing as community offshore wind? I remember I think it was a conversation I had with you a while ago about um, solar panels and solar farms, and that if I live in the city, I can buy you know, a share in a solar farm. Is there anything like that for offshore wind? So if you think about a solar farm, that's a great example. And that sort of lends itself to it because solar farms can be any size and they can build it and then, you know, have a hundred subscribers like what you're talking about for a community solar system and make that work. When we're talking offshore wind farms, particularly when we're getting not 30 megawatts, but 800 megawatts, you're talking, you know, these are this is billions of dollars that you're talking. So it's a little harder to see buying into that. There is an, an effort, there has been an effort, including here in Massachusetts, for what's called community empowerment, which is letting communities use, so a town or a city, use its balance sheet to to sort of get behind a project and, and buy a piece or agree to, to uh, sort of back a piece of that the output from a project that hasn't passed into law yet in Massachusetts. We're still working on that, but that's a that's a way that you can, not as an individual, but as a community, get involved in, in, in offshore wind. We'll be back in a moment with the second half of our interview. The Got Science podcast is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, PRX, SoundCloud, and many more places where you can download podcasts. And we're also on Twitter, so please drop me a tweet. You can find us at GotScienceUCS. Now let's get back to our interview. We are going to talk in a minute about cool new technologies, but I do have to ask you this question because it does still um, come up a lot. What are the risks to fishing to lobster traps to ocean life and of course birds because that's been a big issue in the past it's a great question and certainly worth considering and it is something that gets studied a whole lot before turbines go into the water if you think about birds the european experience is that birds what what we've seen at least in some wind farms that are well documented the birds learn to go around the turbines around the wind farms themselves completely. Really interesting graphics out there of, of uh, looking at flight patterns of birds. From a marine life perspective, you're, you're altering the seabed. You are putting something on the seabed. For some species, that's probably a problem. For other species, that might be a, a good thing, actually, because now they have something solid. It's like an artificial reef. In terms of the fishing fleet, you know, they can, uh, people can continue to fish. I mean, they you can uh, between the turbines. Obviously, it alters. You don't just have an open field the way you did before, an open sea. But uh, they've certainly learned to accommodate that in in Europe. 
And there are solutions. If you look what if for the Block Island wind farm, before that farm happened, uh, there was a, a whale protocol that was worked out with some leading environmental groups and the developers to say, here's what we want you to do. You got spotters. They're watching any sign of a whale anywhere. You stop and you wait until the area is clear, completely clear before you start again. Things like that. And, you know, how fast the boats can travel. Um, and and sighting, if you sight these things, there are places that are going to be less intrusive, places that are going to be more intrusive from a marine mammal perspective, from a fish, from a fishing perspective. And actually, one of the project's developers uh, in Massachusetts has just reconfigured their turbines to put them farther apart and align them east-west to make them fit fishing habits better. So they are sensitive to that, and they are really trying to make sure you're accommodating that. Let's talk current new turbine technology. I gather there's some pretty innovative stuff happening out there or that's in development. So tell us what's tell us what you're seeing. I've got to say, as a mechanical engineer, I find offshore wind turbines just in, incredibly exciting from a mechanical, from a technological perspective. So what, what we're seeing in terms of the evolution is, of the industry is larger wind farms, that means uh, costs are coming down in part because of the scale of the projects. They're also coming down because of the size of the turbines. We also see an evolution in terms of the, the, the technology for the bases. They can now do the monopiles, you know, picture just a single pole going down into the seabed, which is the simplest way to do it, maybe. We're seeing that in deeper water. They figured out how to do that. So whereas projects might have been in 20 meters of water, now they can be in 40 meters of water, so 130 feet or whatever. Uh, so that's really neat. We've also just seen the first sort of commercial scale floating wind turbines off of Scotland. Five turbines, not a big thing, but just showing how you can build these things in port, even in another country, and then tow them into their location. But uh, maybe even neater for the near term is larger turbines. So whereas six megawatt might be the standard now, we've seen projects with eight megawatts. We've now just had the first 8.8 megawatt wind turbines uh, sited, uh, installed. And just to give you give you a sense, there was a quote about offshore wind turbines are now the largest rotating machines on earth. These are pretty, these are pretty big. What they say is that a single rotation can power a house for a day. These things are big and they're getting bigger. So that's 8.8 megawatts. There are 10 megawatt or 12 megawatt wind turbines under development, even even bigger than that. So uh, you're really not limited on the sea the way you are on land. You know, there's a limit to what you can truck down the road to the wind, to the wind farm site. It, at sea, you can you just have larger barges and, you know, to and, and taller cranes to build these things. So, John, what's the wildest, most innovative um, technology you've seen? What I'm watching for is uh, these, these larger turbines. Uh, this isn't really wild, but the, the floating floating wind turbines, because those are, those are going to be important, not, not for the east coast of the U.S., because we've got lots, the outer continental shelf is very shallow for quite a distance, uh, and not for if we want to do uh, wind, offshore wind in the Great Lakes, which is a possibility, or off the Gulf Coast. We have possibilities there. But if we want to get to the West Coast, the continental shelf drops off really quickly there. And so floating wind turbines are going to be a really 
interesting piece, really important piece to, to make that happen. So are you, you're floating them out there to position them? Right. To and stay then, there. And then how, so how that floating works, what that configuration is, and then how you attach them to the seabeds. Those, there, are, there are lots of questions, lots of things to be worked out there. We as a, as a country, as a world, have experience with oil and gas platforms, floating platforms, but the geometry is very different. And so figuring out how this works, figuring out how we make sure that the cables going down to the seabed aren't inter- interfering unduly with, with marine mammals, with fish, whatever. Uh, those, are, those are things that need to be worked out. So it sounds like I'm hearing a lot of positives, but what are the current barriers to bringing on more offshore wind? Well, it's a great question. And until recently, I would have said cost was a big barrier. But with the proposal that we just that Massachusetts is is pursuing now or, or signing for the Massachusetts utilities are are getting uh, cost seems like that's no longer, you know, it'll continue to be an issue. We'll want to keep dropping the cost. But that really was amazing. So I'd say it's really it's the newness of this. It's the newness of this for policymakers for the public at large, for industry that it has to satisfy, has to supply what we're asking for. What we're seeing with the f- this first project that's under development off of Massachusetts is trying to work it out with the fishing industry, make sure that they're comfortable, they can get to a place where they can understand how they can coexist with projects like these. Again, we're, we're doing projects offshore wind in part because of what's happened to our marine ecosystems, to, to fishing, fish stocks here and around the world. So we want, we want it for addressing climate change. We also want to make sure that it's as compatible as possible with our, our very rich fishing tradition in New England and beyond. So what do you see as the winning scenario for the U.S. in terms of offshore wind technology? I think everything we've talked about. I, I, think, I think getting to scale is going to be really important. I think having that clear path so that industry understands the level of commitment that we have, we the people have toward this, so that they are are willing to, that states are saying we want it, that we want lots of it, that, we're, that we want it now, so that industry can say, okay, so it's worth investing in this. It's worth setting up shop here. It's worth putting up a manufacturing plant for this component here, that component there. I think that's, that's what's going to take. Uh, the East Coast, I imagine, is going to continue to lead on this for a bit. But again, there is there's activity in the Great Lakes. It could be off the Gulf Coast. And then as floating wind turbines become more of an option, seeing the West Coast come into this, come into the picture, too. So what does your crystal ball tell you uh, for the next year, two years, five years down the road? I think we're going to continue to see states competing against each other for a piece of this pie. Uh, I think we're going to see a growing recognition that this is something that you don't want to be left out of, that there is a lot going on here. There's a lot of there there. Uh, So you're going to see more policies from states and maybe even in the current states. Massachusetts actually just passed another law building on the 2016 law that allows the administration to maybe even up our offshore wind target. Uh, We're going to see more areas off our coasts up for lease, even under this administration, the Trump administration, the Secretary of the Interior, Ryan Zinke, they actually get offshore wind, They or they, they seem to understand why we would want more of this. So we're going to see some more lease areas 
south of Massachusetts that will be leased out. And there are other areas that have been identified that are possibilities. And we're going to see more turbines. You know, it's going to take a little bit for the next ones to to get in the water, but construction could be starting uh, within a year or two. We could we'll, we'll we'll be seeing more of this happening. Is there anything the average person can do to encourage offshore wind? Talk it up. I mean, help people understand that if if what they've got in their minds when they think of offshore wind is a really expensive project from 15 years ago. They need to update their thinking. Or if they're talking to friends who are stuck in that mindset, just say, yeah, actually, look at the latest cost. Look at, what, look at what's happening in Europe. Look at what's happening in Massachusetts, in Rhode Island, in New York, in New Jersey, and all the way down the coast and up to Maine and elsewhere. Just help, uh, help people understand the momentum that we're building, the momentum that we have. That this is a technology that is that is real. It's coming. It's here, and it's going to be an important part of our electricity mix any day now. And we just we need more, more, more. We need more, more, more. While we're doing, not to the exclusion of all those other things, we need to do to address climate change, but so that we have another tool in our toolbox for getting off of coal, for getting off of natural gas, for going beyond fossil fuels. Offshore wind is is the real deal. Well, thanks, John. It sounds like offshore wind is taking off and we're just really on the right trajectory. It's a technology, an industry, definitely worth watching. So thanks for having me, Colleen. And now it's time for Sidelining Science, the latest shady news from an administration that seems hell-bent on pushing qualified people out. Our Shreya Dervasala has the story. Like many of these segments where I talk about government agencies, this one is going to be alphabet soup with lots of acronyms, so bear with me. Within every U.S. government agency, there are many bureaus with names and missions of their own tasked with carrying out some smaller piece of the overall agency's work. This story is about two of those smaller agencies within the United States Department of Agriculture, a.k.a. the USDA. The two smaller agencies are called the Economic Research Service, or ERS, and the National Institute of Food and Agriculture, or NIFA. The nearly 300 employees who work at the ERS conduct objective economic research that informs public and private decision-making on agriculture, food, the environment, and rural America. Some of their work is on regulatory issues like climate change, food safety, and healthy eating. Over at NIFA, The 350 employees there provide leadership and funding for initiatives that ensure the long-term viability of agriculture. It's basically a grant-making program that helps spur innovations in agricultural science. Both bureaus are headquartered in Washington, D.C., along with um, USDA head Sonny Perdue, Congress, the President, and the headquarters of every federal agency. But by the end of 2019, If the USDA gets its way, most of these nearly 700 employees at the ERS and NIFA will be somewhere else, either retired, resigned, or forced to move out of D.C. to keep their jobs. In August 2018, the USDA told the employees of these two bureaus that their offices will be relocated to some as-yet-undecided other location. The USDA also announced they'd be moving the Economic Research Service under the purview of the Office of the Chief Economist within the USDA, a policy office that reports directly to Sonny Perdue 
and an office, oddly enough, which is staying put in Washington, D.C. The USDA says they're moving these two bureaus because they're having a hard time recruiting people to work there because of D.C. rents. As a former D.C. resident, I get it. I can confirm that rent is expensive. But all federal agencies have to deal with this problem, and somehow they still manage to find qualified employees. The USDA also says they can cut costs by moving, even though they'd be paying to relocate those who can go, wherever it is they're going. People who are skeptical of the move include economic experts and policy watchdogs, like Ricardo Salvador, director of my organization's Food and Environment Program. On bringing the ERS under the chief economist's office, Ricardo says it could signal that the chief economist can now ignore research from the bureau that doesn't align with a certain political agenda. Other skeptics of the move and the reorganization include actual employees. In an interview with the publication Government Executive, one anonymous ERS employee says they believe the move is intended to, quote, reduce the size of government in any way possible and reduce the scientific capabilities of the organization. It's the research they're going after, end quote. Another ERS employee in the same interview says, quote, this is terrible news and is effectively going to seriously downgrade the size of the place and the mission and resources, end quote. And, they say, if this bureau must report to the chief economist, it will compromise their, quote, objective, hands-off, policy-relevant research, end quote. Given President Trump's attempts to slash funding from both bureaus, and Sonny Perdue's track record of adopting anti-science policies, this top-down command to relocate and reassign looks less like cost-saving measures and an awful lot like sidelining science. Well, that's it for this episode of Got Science. Special thanks to senior energy analyst John Rogers. Sidelining Science was brought to you by Shreya Dravasula. Editing by Omari Spears. Music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Wirth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Thanks, and come talk to me on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. See you next time.